0: Bonjour, and welcome to Cibet, the podcast about psychology, philosophy, and minor grievances, which shall not stand. I'm your host, Sophia, and this is Greg. Bonjour. (laughs) And this episode of the podcast, oh, is not brought to you by our patrons, but (laughs) it could be at one point. (laughs) But anyway, today on the show, we're discussing... Basically, this article that I read on The New Yorker, I think it came out in September, but it's about Hasan Minhaj, who is one of my favorite comedians ever since. I don't even know. I feel like I've been watching him forever, actually. But yeah, way back in September, I was just scrolling through my Instagram feed, and I saw an article by The New Yorker, and it was about him. And I was like, I have to click on this immediately because it's about my man, Hasan. And I feel like he doesn't really get that much exposure and I was happy to see he finally got in like a major, major news outlet. Um, and then I was reading the article and it's kind of like an expose, like it's taking like the devil's advocate side of like whether essentially it's about Hudson's latest special where he talks about a bunch of different things that happened in his life and how that led him to, be the comedian that he is today and his like comedic style and the way that he like goes about his life ethically. And, um, the article was talking about how all of the things he said in his special were essentially lies. And is that even like important in comedy? Because really, does anyone tell the truth in comedy? But (laughs) as I was reading the article, I was like, Oh, first of all, I did not know this about Hassan. I mean, I kind of have the feeling every time that I watch a comedy special that they're not telling like the full truth because essentially they're just like performing. Like they're not doing this to tell the truth. They're doing it to like get a rise out of people to like say some sort of message And a lot of the stories that people tell in comedy specials aren't even like, like it's so obviously exaggerated that you kind of have to suspend your disbelief and be like, okay, you know, this guy's obviously not telling like the entire truth, but I see where he's getting with this. Like I see the point of this, but it's something that I hadn't really thought about or like seen discussed until I saw this article. And I don't know. It kind of just got me thinking, like the article is called, I think, Hasan is emotional truths and his whole argument is that like the means justify the ends like basically that he's allowed to say whatever he wants well not like whatever he wants but like to like you know dramatize or like exaggerate a few things in his like story in order to like drive home the broader point of what he's trying to say and he was like in the article oh the emotional truths remain, like the story might not be entirely true, but the emotional truths remain. And he's just, it's just like a recurring theme throughout the whole article. It's just emotional truths, emotional truths, emotional truths. It kind of feels like a buzzword at this point, but I was just thinking about it and I was like, you know, does he even have to be transferred? First of all, why are they writing this article about <laughs> I feel like it's because I think The Daily Show, which is a show that he was on before he did Patriot Act, which is his Netflix special, and then he went to a solo comedy, and now I think he's, like, a runner-up for being the next host of The Daily Show behind Trevor Noah, and I think they wrote this article because they wanted to, you know, play devil's advocate, be like, should he really be the host of The Daily Show if he doesn't even tell the truth in his comedy specials? So I feel like that's kind of shitty, but I guess you can't really control what the media says about you, but anyway... I was like wondering why they wrote this article and I was like does he even have to be transparent as a comedian because we don't we as the audience don't really know these comedians like I think the whole tone of like a comedy or like a show that you watch or like even like a TED talk is very conversational and it kind of feels like you should know this person a little more it's like feels very personal like they're telling you a story at like your friends giving party but like in reality all the relationships that we have with these public figures are parasocial so it's like no i don't actually know hossin despite following him for years like i only see what he posts on his social media selectively or like what he decides to share on his comedy specials and that's like a tiny little insight into his life so i think like in my logical mind i'm like okay It doesn't really matter what he says because I think his special was actually very powerful. I watched, um, I've seen all of his specials to be honest because I think he's doing a good thing. He's talking about, you know, being a Muslim in America, what it's like being a brown person in a majority white space. Like I think everything that he talks about is very powerful and especially in his special, he was talking about like the ramifications of all of that, like his identity in the space that he's in and also just like, you know, what it's like to live in America, especially growing up. I think he grew up in, like, a very polarized environment. I hope it's getting better, but I think when he was growing up, it was pretty difficult, and especially since he, on his show, The Patriot Act, he has a lot of controversial opinions, and as a result, gets a lot of, like, there's definitely safety, um, like, safety that goes into it. Like, he was talking about threats to his family, etc., and it just like drives home the most, the more powerful message, which I think he was going for of like, you know, people of color can't really do the same things as like someone who's in the majority in that space. And he was just driving awareness towards that. But I think with this article coming out, people are like, oh, he's lying. So all the stuff that he was trying to get at in his special doesn't matter as much, which I don't, I don't think it's true, to be honest, because like I said earlier, we don't know him as a person. We don't know anything that happened to him. Did this happen to him? Maybe. But the point of the show is that like we are seeing him as a performer and he's trying to tell a story like a friend. But as a result, he's trying to like bring up these issues in like a more friendly way. So it's more approachable than if you just see an article about it or if you just like think about it without knowing anyone who's ever experienced this like I think he's trying to do like a conversational awareness kind of deal and not um and not like a you know sensationalized article that you see in the news so I don't know I feel like um if we get something out of the story does it really matter that it's like entirely true because even like comedians who talk about stuff that aren't so serious like they just talk about like their dating lives or like I mean that is serious to people too but they talk about you know things that they went through in the past and like how that led to where they are today but like in a comedic lens and every time I watch them I'm like you know they exaggerate I'm like this is not true but that's okay because it's still funny you know it's still a joke and it's like I know what they're trying to get at still relatable and at the end of the day I feel like they don't owe us the truth it's kind of just um, they owe us like a performance, they owe us entertainment. We're coming there to laugh, you know, so does it really matter? Do we have to critically think about everything that they're saying? I don't know, but the article just like kind of drew awareness to that, and yeah, it's just a thought that I've been thinking about ever since I've read it, and you know, how accountable do they have to be in their art, in their performance? and to us, and just, like, through Hasan Minaj himself, I feel like he kind of is in a tough position because he did Patriot Act, where he was a political reporter, essentially, and then in his comedy special, he's portraying, like, himself as a person and his life story, and I feel like those are two different things where, as a political reporter, he had to be very truthful. Like, he was talking about actual events that happened in the world and doing, like, a comedic spin on it, and i feel like that you have to be very true about and everything he was saying there had to be fact checked very rigorously whereas when he's talking about his own life there's kind of like a different i don't know there's a different reason for doing that for him and the fact checking for his own life i feel like is different than if you're fact checking like an article or like an actual like thing that happened in the world so I don't know. I feel like people kind of like mistake those two identities because the person that he is on stage is probably very different than the person he is on Patriot Act or The Daily Show as a political reporter or even like as a person like not in front of the screen. I feel like he's very different. So I think at the end of the day, it's just important to remember that like we don't know these people as people and we're not supposed to know these people as people. Um, we're just supposed to know them as like a medium for either like laughing or like learning something or just understanding why they're kind of doing the art that they do, like taking a step back and be like, oh, this is why he's doing this. It's not to like tell everyone an autobiography of his story. It's more of like to drive awareness and to help us put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's like a familiar face in order to like, understand what people like him go through so yeah that's kind of just like my opinion about that whole emotional truth article it was really tearing him apart and I felt kind of bad because like at the end of the day I mean like I watched that show and at the end of it I thought it was extremely powerful it talks about how he's loyal to his family at the end of the day how he went through a phase of like you know he got popular very fast and then As a result, he had to, like, he kind of rode that high of being popular, and he just, like, kept doing, like, more controversial things because he would get a lot of reactions from that, and how that had, like, actual effects on the family and his, like, loved ones, and then um, just, like, how he grew from that experience and, like, what he wants to do with comedy now, and I thought it was a good, like, arc, a character arc of, like, how he grew throughout his experience in comedy, and... I don't know, to, like, belittle that just because some of the things he said were exaggerated maybe or that he wasn't entirely, you know, like some of the stories that he made he, like, crafted in order to, like, put you in the place of, like, a broader emotional truth, as they say. I feel like it kind of takes apart or takes away from the message that he was going for, so... Overall, I think the article was interesting, but I feel like I stand by the fact that, you know, when I go to a comedy show, I'm not really expecting someone to like tell me about their whole, you know, everything that happens like back to back in their life, because I'm just there to have a good time. I'm just there to like laugh, to learn. And yeah, but it was a good article. In order, like I wouldn't say it's like a good article, but it was like an eye-opening article about like what other people are thinking because I feel like I'm kind of like in a bubble, or I'm like, oh yeah, this person's great, but it's interesting to hear like other opinions and like kind of the opposing side of like, oh, is this person really that great? It helps you like think about it, question your own opinions, and then come to like what you think is true or good for yourself.
1: So when I saw that you were going to talk about Hassan, or, I, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, dear listener, um, the show is not entirely extemporaneous. We give each other bullet points on what we want to talk about. Um, but, uh, when I saw you're going to talk about Hassan Minaj, the, my first impulse was, oh, this is interesting. Um, because he positions himself as the news guy, right? Um, and he trades on his authenticity with his audience in a way that a traditional comic doesn't. And I think maybe that's an interesting thing we can get into, um, which is like the obligation of emotional honesty depending on who you're talking to. But with Hassan, like I gotta admit, I like him just fine. like he's not my dude, like he is with you. like he's not on my go-to list of follows. So when the New Yorker headline came out about him making stuff up, I did not investigate further. Um, But then I did, uh, after I knew we were going to talk about it. And there was a follow-up a couple weeks ago where he showed email receipts from the interview. And two things. One, the headlines and the commentary that keep pushing the fabrication angle seem like they're either in bad faith which we can get into a whole other rant on um, or they stop at the headline, which like like what I did the first time um, and we can probably rant on that too. but to talk about him specifically or I guess even talk broader about what honesty and emotional honesty are depending on who you're talking to, I think had he made had he made up air bunnies, had he made up, the stories that he was telling in an autobiography or on one of his news shows. I think if that were the actual substance of the article, we could agree that that's bad, right? But I think what the story ultimately comes down to is he compressed details and he was fuzzy on timelines in the stand up set, which, first of all, like, that's what stand up is. Right, you tweak your stories so that they have clear setups and payoffs and like rise and fall in a compelling way. And you're playing, if not an outright character, you're playing a characterized version of yourself. And that's every comic. And there are exceptions where like there are one one person shows where it's more of a TED talk than a comedy act. But his special was a comedy act. Like it wasn't like a sit down and, and bear all type of thing, even though I think the emotional catharsis of the, of the set does feel that way. But even if we're not talking about a comic or not talking about a comedy set, that's how we tell stories about ourselves, right? Like, I'm sure we can talk about stories that we've told each other or other people. Um, you know, the first time you tell a story to someone or your story, maybe it's like, maybe it's a little shaggy. And then, like, the next time you talk to them or the next time you tell that story, you, like, cut a part out or you add a part because the person you're talking to is, like, a specific audience. Like, you introduce yourself to a cop and you mention that you passed D.A.R.E. class in fifth grade, right? And, like, we all have stories that we've told a bunch of times. And, you know, the whole thing about a stand-up comic is by the time it gets to a special, they've told that story hundreds, if not thousands of times. And when you tell a story a bunch of times, you start to figure out the little shorthands to get to the good parts. Like, you know, I don't don't want to give a specific example from Hassan's set because I want to do it justice. But, you know, if I'm telling a story, maybe I yada yada out a car ride, you know, when we're trying to go somewhere. Or um, maybe instead of saying my friend's acquaintance who came with us, you just say my friend. And like, I'm sure someone will point out something I'm giving a pass on, but that's the type of thing Hasan was doing in his bits, right? Like compressing stuff like that to make it a better story. And at that point, whether it's him or me, if you're going to call that out, at what point does it become distinction without difference? Like when he said emotional truth, it's easy to jump on that as a weasel word, or like you said, like it turns into a buzzword where like it almost, it can mean whatever you want, depending on where you're coming from. But I think that's ultimately what he means is he's making distinctions without difference. So whether it's your friend or your friend's acquaintance who came with us, if you're talking to that person's mom, maybe you need to get that detail right. But for everyone else, it does not change the story in a meaningful way. And certainly in the case of like a standup set, it doesn't change the emotional catharsis of the story in a meaningful way. So like, I don't know, maybe you get, maybe you give the substance of the New Yorker article a little bit more credit than what I do having just reread it. But I don't know. Does that kind of resonate with kind of where you're coming at it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of what I've been thinking about, too, It's just like, I don't know. I just feel like that he was just like kind of like what you were talking about, that this is a comedy show. He's a performer and everyone to an extent kind of does what he does, I think, because he's in like a public lens and because he built his career on very like fact-checked stories on politics on things that are very serious when it comes to his own life instead of the sensationalized version of himself that he's portraying in like a comedy show I think people hold him to a different standard and maybe I follow him a lot closer than most people because I think that like I kind of said earlier like I feel like I can identify with like parts of him and like the things that he's talking about and I feel like he's doing like good work And based on that, I am a little biased towards his side because I do I do support him as a person. When the article first came out, it was like a good kind of reality check for me to be like, okay, is this person like actually like a good person, quote unquote? But also, does it really matter that I think he's a good person, that other people think he's a good person, if he's like the greater, broader message of his show is to just um Bring up awareness, tell a story of how he got to his point, and like be a little, um, just kind of like tell people why he's like doing the comedy that he's doing now and how he grew to that point. Um, I guess that's subjective though. Like, if you're a good person, and does it does truth telling make you a good person?
1: Well, and to your point too, like you know you follow him really closely, so maybe you can you can be a good subjective voice on this, but when you follow him, is it in, you know, are you thinking of it in that terms? Like, are you thinking, is he being honest with me? Or are you thinking, you know, do I agree with his ideas? Like what, you know, and I, I, another fact checking thing that maybe I should have done. I don't remember who the writer was for the New Yorker. Like are Are they in your boat? Like, are they a disillusioned fan? Are they an objective journalist? Um, You know, what is their stake in it? And I think that kind of gets to maybe a more fuzzy point is, A, who does he have accountability to be honest with? And also, does it matter?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Because I feel like I became, like, I started watching or listening to him Well, first he did patriarch because i liked his views and i liked the way that he delivered his views i thought it was a very like approachable way to talk about like current events and politics um basically he like it's kind of like a ted talk his show and he's like on stage and he's like he has a bunch of like powerpoints and graphics and he talks about things that have happened recently and he does it in a way that's like funny but also accurate and i think it's a good um kind of like bite-sized way for people to know more about like what's going on in the world and what might not be covered in like um traditional news outlets maybe
1: but you're talking and you're talking about patriot act right like that's the patriot act is is the powerpoint presentation type of thing
0: yeah i feel like that's kind of what he built his career off of for a couple years right and then the, he did a thing after every Patriot Act show called Deep Cuts, where basically he interacted with the audience and he like, they asked him questions and he would respond to them. And I feel like that was like his opportunity to build a more personal connection with his fans. And I enjoyed that more than his shows, actually, because I think it was like more of a personal connection. And he talked about like his actual life. And like I said earlier, just like kind of growing up as like – just like, you know – culture of being a Muslim in America, being a brown person in America. And I was like, oh, this guy is like funny. Like he's relatable. And I feel like I didn't see like a person like that in the comedy space for a really long time. And because of that, I like gradually grew to support him more because i got to support my diverse, diverse media people. <laughs> but as, you know, as he got more famous, as he got more of an audience, as he started doing more comedy shows and tours and stuff, I think as with everyone who gets famous, I'm sure, you know, like John Mullaney and stuff, he also gets a lot of slack. And I'm thinking of other famous comedians with Netflix specials, like Bo Burnham. I think as as they grew more popular, like, of course, they got more scrutiny from the media and from people who um, were like, you know, is this person really, like, is this special is this comedy special really saying anything stuff like that but I feel like I mean obviously I don't know Hassan as a person but like being his fan throughout like multiple things that he's done in his career I think that he stayed true to like who he is and like what his mission was at the end of the day and as you grow I'm sure as a comedian you kind of have to do more you have to be bigger you have to do more like you know dramatic things in order to get the or maintain attention from other people so I think he did that but obviously I mean I have no idea if the reporter is like a fan of him even if she just followed him after his recent special I don't really know how people who just followed him from his most recent special would like view him if they hadn't known the stuff that he's done before and why he's doing it but um as someone who has, I think I can justify what he's doing just because, like, I think I know his, like, mission and why he's doing it. So maybe that's different.
1: Well, so, so let me ask, you know, t- with the conceit that, if if we're talking about the New Yorker article, it was about his special and not about his other work.
0: That, yeah, I think Let's put that so. to the
1: side. Um, if you're comparing how, you, you know, as a fan, as somebody who is very familiar with his work— if you're comparing his deep cuts where I would say that's positioned as a truthful peek into his life. Right. I would, would you, would you say that's a fair characterization of what those are like, a, like, an, so. like an honest response to somebody? I think so. Having been a fan of that and like may, maybe that was one of your favorite parts of that show and seeing a very truthful thing. Going into his special, and maybe you don't remember, but like the first time you watched it, did you feel like the show was an extended version of that, or did you feel like it was a, like a comedy show? Like, was the tone were the tones similar, or was there was there a distinct difference in tone between those two particular things that he does?
0: Yeah, I feel like it was similar, but also different because. And his deep cuts, it's, like, very conversational. Like, he's literally talking to, like, one person in the audience, and then they're going back and forth together. And what I liked about that is, like, he's very witty, very fast on his feet. And I don't know how much of it's scripted, but it felt to me like it wasn't scripted. Like, they were asking a question he was genuinely answering. And he was very funny. But in this show, obviously, I knew that it was, like, a show and not the same kind of personal back and forth, like, a conversation with a friend but I did feel like my—I mean, like maybe his personality is just like comedic in general. I feel like he's—he seems at least like he's very like outgoing and he's always like telling a joke. So I feel like in that way, it's like it was personal, but like true to himself as like a comedian, like a person who is like funny. So it kind of t- it felt like he was just telling like the story of like his comedy. Whereas, in his deep cuts, he's telling more of like the story of like his day-to-day life or like things that he observes in his life. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of how I felt.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and, and maybe that kind of goes back to the point maybe I did or did not make, is it depends on your audience, right? And it depends on the story you're telling. Like if I'm telling the story of my college career, I'm going to gloss over details in a different way. And, and let's say that his standup is like telling a big chunk of his life. Right. Versus if, if you're answering a specific question or telling a very specific anecdote about a day like, or like an experience in my college career, I'm going to highlight a lot more things. I'm going to be a lot more granular with the pieces of information that I dole out. Um, so I feel like maybe that is a distinction. And and I'm not super, like, I'm fuzzy on what his his conversations were like on the show in those segments. But I imagine, because it is very specific in those situations, he is going to be more granular. And when you're telling a broader, sweeping thing, you are going to change details. You are going to leave things out in a way that you wouldn't otherwise.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, at the end of the day, his comedy special was scripted. And I guess you know you never know if his Q and A sections are scripted either. If he like planted a question in the crowd so he could react to it in a specific way to seem funny, like you never know with anything with anyone. I guess, but I feel like as the person who's watching or like as a fan, you kind of have to choose what you're willing to suspend the dis- disbelief of, or like what you're choosing to believe in a person. So like, I don't know. I've definitely, I mean, like, I've definitely thought about it before. Like, oh, is this scripted? But that's-
1: I don't know if this resonates with you. But I know that, like, when my wife and I are at a dinner party, there are stories that we tell where the other one knows where they're supposed to come in to, like, chime in with something. And it's, like, that's kind of the same thing, right? Like, knowing the story you want to tell and then, like, being able to prompt each other to do it. And, what again, whether or not those Q and A's were scripted. I can kind of see how that would even apply to a daily life or with like, if you're with a friend and you're recounting a night out, there are certain things where you would maybe expect them to chime in with what happened.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. I feel like I'm trying to think like, I mean, I can never like predict how another person is going to like chime in to be honest. Sometimes like people do chime in when I'm talking about a story and sometimes they don't. And maybe it's like different for you than it is for me. Cause I don't like tell this. I don't like, tell the story like a, a story like so often that I kind of get the rhythm of like how I should tell it but I guess like when I'm thinking about my own conversations with other people um man I'm trying to think if there's a story that I like tell all the time it's so and I'm not saying I'm me. not
1: saying a story that we tell all the time like I'm I don't have like a queue of five stories that I only tell those five <laughs> like that's I'm not okay, quite that guy but yeah. Um, you know, there are stories that in part of it is just familiarity and maybe this is part of it too, is like talking about the audience. There is familiarity with the audience where if it is a story that you've told or told to a certain group of people where you are kind of hamming it up a little bit, like that's going to be a different thing. And as an audience, and maybe this kind of goes to you being a fan of Hasan or just, you know, thinking about if you're listening to somebody in general and trying to pick out what's real and what's not or trying to you know horn in on is this real or is this not i think there's a difference between like being nosy and like seeking information that creates distinction without difference um and who that relationship is and then the audience or the person that's like giving a shit um like, there are, there are people who would ask a follow-up question to a story I would tell them, and I would get into the weeds with them. Like, And then there are also people who would ask that same question about that same story, and I would say, it doesn't matter, like, next question, and I would move past it. I don't know really where I'm going with that, but it seems like, especially with a public figure like Sam Minaj, there has to be that divide there no matter how much he treads on his parasocial relationships, I don't think he's a person who is, his his fame and his brand does not rise and fall with one-on-one relationships. He's always speaking from a pulpit. And I think that inherently creates a wall where people aren't entitled to that granularity. I think he can see that even if you just think about your own your own life, your own interactions with people, I think there's always that divide there, ex- you know, with exceptions for a few people in your life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it too, as you were talking, but I feel like it's kind of opposite for me, or like, maybe for other people too, reporters, journalists, where it's like, if it's a public figure, I think people are more more willing to pick apart, like, the small details of something. But I'm thinking about, like, when people tell me a story or, like, people rant to me about their day or they're just, like, telling me or if I'm in a situation where it's, like, someone is telling something and there's, like, a group of people. um, I feel like I just, like, automatically believe them, to be honest. Like, I don't think that they're lying or I think that they're, like, sensationalizing it for a group or pulling apart details, stuff like that. I just, like, kind of just, like believe them. Whereas maybe that's like that's the same thing for like Hassan too when I'm thinking about his comedy is that I kind of just like I'm willing I'm willing to believe I guess people that I think are trustworthy. And in a public figure, like Wens parasocially, like I have no idea if he's trustworthy, but like in like a friend or like is someone that I know, I feel like, you know, even if they're like, you know, saying something to be dramatic, or saying something to be more, um, I don't know, to get across, like, a message, whether or not, like, the little details are true, and, like, you know, the emotional truth, like, we're connecting here, like, they're trying to, like, share something with me, so, like, it's not really my business if it's, like, true or not, like, if they're trying to, like, get across, like, a feeling that they felt in that situation, or um, just, like, some sort of, like, message you know because like I guess like people don't 100% remember what happened and if they're like telling you or ranting something to you they're kind of just doing it to like release something or like because they want you to understand how they felt more so than like getting in the nitty-gritty of like oh did this actually happen at eleven fifty nine on a Tuesday you know so I think I'm more forgiving with people that I think like that I view as more like like me or like I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but maybe that's why I'm thinking that I can forgive Hassan for like pulling apart a few details on his story.
1: And, you know, I think the other thing that that makes me think of is when somebody is telling you a story and you're apt to believe them, typically, again, you weren't a part of that story. So you don't have any stakes in whether or not each detail is true. And I think that's something that's easy to forget with celebrities or at least with public figures, where it is such a an open book in some cases, and then very very much the opposite, where we expect transparency when really we probably shouldn't.
0: I guess it's like a broader argument of like, should we expect transpar? Who do we expect transparency from? Do we should we expect transparency from everyone? Like, I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day, I feel like. Um, it's not really my business, like, if someone's lying to me, like, that's kind of on them. <laughs> so as long as, you know, they're okay with it, they're saying what they need to say, they're trying to, like, connect, trying to get you to understand, then it's like, okay, I see where you're going with this. I'll support you in this, but I don't know. It's not like I'm going to pick apart the details. <laughs>
1: Okay, are we ready to do the small rants?
0: Yes, you go first while I think of a small rant.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I have to set this one up a little bit. So, point one, in the spirit of truth and emotions and how you share emotions, our older generations, broadly speaking, because that's what generations are, Uh, are known for having repressed the genuine expression of joy and enjoyment. Um, And there was kind of a meta effect of disingenuity. Um, So you go back to Gen X, they're defined by apathy, right? Nothing matters. Nothing is joyous. Um, Then in millennials, which would be like me, uh, you move one step past that. Like, it's not that we're apathetic, but you still need ironic detachment from joy. So, like, when I was in high school and college, people used to say they like a show or a band, ironically. Like, if we're being honest, they just liked it. And then, you know, 15 years ago, you got shows like The Office that were defined by the turn to camera, where the joke is that you're above the joke. Um then I feel like in that sense, the legacy of Gen Z is going to be a return to sincerity and unironically enjoying things and expressing joy or sadness. That's healthy. I think we can agree that embracing emotion is healthy. Yeah. So point two, in that vein, uh, we have been seeing a rehabilitation of disco as a genre. Um, Back in the 1980s, there was a movement to trash disco. Disco sucks, they'd say. Uh, You had this musical movement that was built around happiness and inclusion, and then rather than having it organically exist in parallel to other genres, you had this pop media-driven campaign to demolish it. And it got a bad rap. And now people are going back and acknowledging that disco is not a punchline, right? There are some legit disco bangers. Dave Grohl went on record saying that his drum beats in Nirvana were straight rip-offs of drum beats from his mom's old disco records. That's not the rant. Are you still with me? Okay, now my rant. I'm going to take this, the first official episode of this illustrious podcast, uh, to potentially burn any and all Tastemaker credibility I have with our listeners. Sophia, you have heard this. Here goes. Let's bring back ska music. Particularly, let's bring back ska punk music. For our dear listeners who are not elder millennials, let me explain the sum of the parts in this music. First, you've got your reggae syncopated guitar, interesting, playing on the twos and fours, so you got your natural dance feel. Now you pair that with fast punk drums, but they also swing the hi-hat, right? So you're going double time, you're also grooving. What's the bass doing? Fast rhythm and blues with swing and drops. So you know, doom, doom, to doom, 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 walking up and down the fretboard, you know, moving all over the place. So you got this exciting rhythm section. Is that what makes it great? Sure. But now you add a horn section. Who doesn't love a horn section? I love a horn section. You got this fast, aggressive, dancing music with trombones and saxophones going over the top. Sometimes you throw a keyboard with like a wah wah or like a chip tune thing going on. How's a person gonna sing over all that? Well, maybe you get two singers. One's going to be a punk singer, uh, you know, getting a little screamy, a little bit of a ringleader. One's going to be your crooner, uh, play with those melodies and the horns, smooth things out. You get your pop influences all gelled together. Sometimes one of those people can rap. In my formative years, you had your no-doubts with their Gwen Stefani's. You had your mighty mighty boss tones. You had your suicide machines and all these bands who were loud and colorful and super earnest. Uh, But then you had your Gwen Stefani's get quote unquote serious and they pivoted really hard away from the genre and they downplay that part of their heritage, which was heartbreaking. And then you had your bubble burst pretty quick and you had your pop culture disco sucks type thing happen, right? And it was a, real sad it was very sad to me here's the thing ska is the perfect gen z and gen whatever the fuck music you got your melting pot sensibilities you got band geeks and punk kids and queer kids there's a big leftist bent to a lot of the lyrics there's a big emo bent to a lot of the other lyrics and what made me think of this is my wife retweeted a thing at me the other day that said, Ska sounds like what a 13-year-old boy getting a free order of mozzarella sticks at a David Buster's feels like. And I think that was supposed to be a slap. But you know what? It's exactly that. Because that scenario is someone expressing true joy at a pure and simple pleasure in an environment that encourages partaking in a pure and simple pleasure. And we all need that in our lives right now, because the planet is on fire, and everything is fucked, and we all need to slip on our checkered vans and play air trombone and get aggressively into silly, crazy, anarchist music. Let's bring Ska back. End of rant.
0: That was so beautiful. (laughs) Isn't Ska, isn't like, you know the song Santeria? Isn't that Ska?
1: Yeah, so yeah, Sublime is is a Ska-ish band. I think they went a little bit more hip-hoppy.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I would say traditional Ska is a little bit more of almost like a swing focus.
0: Okay. I'm like, do I know what ska is? I feel like I do in theory.
1: In theory. Can
0: yeah. I name a ska band? No doubt. Are they a ska band?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like their first album was very ska-ish. And then they, okay. like, then, like I said, they kind of pivoted away and they really started bringing in like, uh, you know, new wave and like, you know, like dance hall type stuff, which is ska-adjacent. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like they kind of go away from it. And that's, you know, I think the thing that would keep potentially ska from ever coming back, other than the fragmentation of musical genre and audiences, is it's like a 10-piece band, right? And so if you're trying to do that in your house or like take that on a tour without major label support, it's kind of prohibitively expensive. Versus, you know, like a, I mean, that said, it, when you get into some of your bigger stars, like a Mac DeMarco or whatever, you know, aside from who's on stage, he has 20 people behind the stage with him. So it's not like it's entirely out of the question. But somebody needs to craft that nut. They need to like go hard and commit to it.
0: <laughs> Scott just needs more funding
1: in general. So bring,
0: yeah. So you can bring a 10-person band all the way across the country. Right. I love it. I love embracing the cringe. I did not think of what I was going to rant, but as you were ranting, I was like, okay, I can talk about being cringe. (laughs) I feel like I don't script anything on this podcast, so everything is just purely going off of what you say, so now this message will be tied to Scott. (laughs) Good. I'm glad um yeah so I am a fan I have been a fan of the k-pop group of BTS for a long time a long time ever since I was a senior in high school and I needed music to study too and I didn't want it to be in English because it would then distract me from what I actually have to study I discovered BTS because they sing in Korean and I was like okay I don't understand Korean so this could work and then slowly I like would listen to this music and I'd be like, what are they saying? And then you delve into what they're saying. And then it's just a long rabbit hole from there. And then long story short, I've been a fan, but when you're talking about how Gen Z embraces being cringe and all the stuff that we shouldn't like, or like is seen to be kind of cringe to like, I think of BTS because a lot of BTS fans, and I think like fan girls, so to say in general of like any majority boy, band or group, regardless of that group, it seen to be like crazy or like not smart or I don't know. There's just, a, I feel like when it's, when a group or like when people, when a group of people like something and that group of people is majority girls, I feel like people tend to write off like that group or like see them as something other than what they are. And I feel like... That's kind of a double standard because I was talking with my boyfriend actually recently about his interests, and he and his friends, and a lot of Europeans in general, are very into football or soccer. And we were kind of noticing some similarities between fanboys of sports and fangirls of bands, in that, you know, you have the chance, you have the passion, you have the energy. A lot of the culture is very similar. But where sports are seen as like a hobby that you can get into, like a very respected hobby, like a lot of people are into sports. I feel like when you think of like fangirls or like people who like the same thing with the same amount of passion, but are girls, you kind of like write them off as like, oh, it's just like a teenage passion, a teenage crazy, whatever like that. But what I'm ranting about really is that, just get rid of that double standard. We all like cringe things, you know. We all, there's always these things that don't really make sense for what we should like, you know. It has no intellectual purpose at all. Even though I will say BTS has a lot of good messages. Like, they are very, um like, you shouldn't write them off just because they have, like, a lot of girl fans. But, like, in general, it's like, we have stuff that we like, that we just like for liking, you know. Like, sometimes you don't want to think about things. You just want to, like, enjoy it. Like, you come home from a long day at work, you just want to watch The Bachelor. That's me and my roommates. Like, is there a reason? No, it's trash. Like, it's terrible TV. But if it's bringing us together, like, if it's something that we can talk about, then I feel like that's not, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So that's my rant as well, is to bring back being cringe and enjoying things just for enjoying them.
1: Well, I don't even think it's embracing cringe. I think it's, you know, because... I think what, what you're referring to as cringe with BTS is that a lot of times their s- lyrics and their sentiments are very on the nose. Like where, again, it's going back to that idea of that emotional distance that you put between something that you like and like, and like you, it, maybe that is embracing cringe, but at least embracing the premise and like rolling with it and being, authentic in, in liking what you like. Um, and like you said, I think sports and like, like the tribalism behind sports, you can definitely tie into the same type of tribalism and fandom that happens in anything. And to think about stuff that is cringe or doesn't matter, I think a good example of something over the last 10 years that has gone that way is comic book culture, right? And like nerd culture, where that's pretty mainstream now. Or if, you know, if you break it down, and really, if you break down soccer, too, it's dudes running around in tights, right? And that's what superheroes are. And if we talk about music, you know, I think the thing that gets people hung up about BTS or, you know, in the generation before, uh, you know, your Backstreet Boys, your NSYNC, your 98 Degrees, is, is there's some level of manufactured culture behind it, right? Because it's a big... Pop group, but behind that there's a lot of craft, and there it there's good messaging and I think when you're when I'm thinking about ska, part of its messaging problem is a it's really on the nose, and b you know if it's a lyric about global warming or let's you know stop all wars or something like that, when that's communicated, it's really on the nose sometimes. And then kind of the trappings of that culture is, like I said, band geeks that have checkered bands and are wearing a fedora like they're trying fashion for the first time. It's easy to poke fun at. And I, like, no offense, but to look at, you know, fangirls of BTS or, like I said, a boy band in general, removed from the fun of it and the culture of it, it's easy to make fun of it because if you don't get it, you don't get it. But, you know... One culture at a time I think we need to as you say remove that stigma destigmatize like what you like show your whole ass
0: I think we're getting there that was a good slogan though you could run for president
1: which one show your whole ass yeah yeah <sighs> it's a good motto I'm gonna I'm gonna it's my thing from now on I'll get a sticker.
0: <laughs> Put on your bumper Let the whole world know
1: <laughs> My ass, yeah
0: <laughs> I hope not Actually, you know what, if you want to do it
1: Yeah, exactly See? Support
0: <laughs> I'm learning too
1: I think that's a good place to leave it Au revoir Au revoir, Phoebe Au revoir, Simone Okay, this is the segment where we give you Your parting. Gifts. A Parting Gift is the segment of the show where we leave you with a piece of pop culture, a suggestion for what you could do until the next time we meet. If you want to give us one of your parting gifts, you can write to us at sabetpodcasts at gmail.com. If you have questions or rants that you'd like to give to the show uh, of any other sort, you can give to that, that same place. So my parting gift this week, I was going to suggest a ska album, um, to be in alignment with my rant. But, uh, I just went to a show this weekend and it's caused me to have a change of heart. My parting gift is an album by the artist Heatbox. Um, he is a beatboxer slash funk musician. Um, and if I were to categorize him, I'd say he's somewhere between Reggie Watts and Weird Al. And he has songs. So his, his new album is called uh, Hilarious and Epically Legendary. And it's him in a very provocative pose with a power glove on his hand. But he has songs like Bad Internet Friend about not getting back to people on social media Uh, He has a song called I Bought a Bat. That's about thinking about intruders in his house. So he goes to Target and buys a bat. Um, He has a song called Inigo Montoya, which is a funk epic about the uh, Princess Bride character, but done with just really big, full, fun funk arrangements with... uh, you know, a space flute and synthesizers and a horn section and backup singers and backup dancers. Um, and if we're talking about embracing cringe and like going with a bit, but like doing it with craft and musicianship, this is the way to go. Uh, so yeah, it's Heatbox. The album is called hilarious and epically legendary. And if you take nothing else away from anything that I've said today, you should check it out. Cause it's a, it's a good listen.
0: Nice. Thank you. I will listen to them. Um, I was trying to think about parting gift for myself also. And I don't know why I'm so bad at thinking about these things. But I was just thinking about past experiences over the past week that I could recommend to people. And I found that I really like sitting on the floor <laughs> during meals. Like You know how we always have tables and dining tables and dining chairs to sit on? I feel like, I mean, like, we only have four at my house right now. So whenever we have a lot of people over, we kind of just, like, sit on the floor. And it's kind of a communal experience I would recommend. Like, you take out the thing that's dividing you, this giant dining table, and you're able to just, like, you know, you're just in a very vulnerable space. I like it. And I don't know. I feel like it's very common also in, like, Asian cultures to just, like, sit on the floor around a table and just eat together. So I would just recommend sitting on the floor sometimes. <laughs> I guess I'm anti-chair for some reason. That's my stance.
1: Uh, dear listener, context for this is uh, Sophia does not have a chair at her desk, so she is sitting on her bed and holding her <laughs> microphone. Um, and I'm here for it. I would say for until we had kids um, and tried to have some semblance of this is – this is, we, li- we live in a society in our house um, we almost never ate at our kitchen table it would always be around the ottoman or on the couch or on the floor um, and now that the kids are getting a little older where if they do eat on the floor they're not just going to completely destroy the place I think we're going to get more and more back to that because it's just a better experience like table is great and I think there's something to be said for gathering around the dinner table with friends or family but doing that same thing on the floor or, like, in a non-sanctioned area is, like, one step closer to camping and, like, one step closer to, like, removing all pretense and just being completely yourself. And I think if that's the theme of this, this episode is, is intellectual and emotional honesty, eating on the floor is the most honest.
0: Wow. That was a great way to tie up what I was saying, which I thought had no meaning. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it for our episode. Thank you very much for listening to us rants and me flounder. Um if you want to submit anything, comments, future rants, anything you're feeling, we have an email, Sibetpodcast at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram at SibetPods. So wherever you feel like putting in a message, please do. <laughs> And we'll see you on the next episode. Um, Au revoir.